0: What's up, guys? Rachel Lindsay here, and I am teaming up with your favorite Ringer podcasters to deliver the Bravo drama and news that you've been craving on Morally Corrupt. It's the show about all things Bravo, from the housewives to summer house and everything in between. We'll be mentioning it all every week. Check it out on Spotify and TheRinger.com.
1: To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See mintmobile for more details.
0: There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that.
1: now hello and welcome to the watch my name is chris ryan i am an editor at the ringer.com and joining me on the other line hoping his id still works at the impenetrable fortress it's andy greenwald is that a star wars thing yeah it's a star wars thing did you just watch obi-wan kenobi don't you want to talk about that today
2: (laughs) do i want to talk about it boy i mean we will
1: andy it's thursday In the United States of America, and we're here to talk about uh, a couple of things today. We've got some news and notes to go over in the top, some headlines from Hollyweird. And uh, then we were going to just briefly chat about uh, Obi-Wan, episode four, and maybe uh, throw some hosannas towards Miss Marvel, uh, another new Disney Plus show, because we love Disney. We love Disney maybe more than Peter Rice loves Disney, outgoing Head of Disney, like all entertainment, right? What was his official job title? Well, so Peter Rice
2: is a long-standing, long-serving executive in all caps. This town, who yeah. was Differing running from Fox the
1: town with Matt Bellamy.
2: Yes, although the same town, weirdly. Yes, and, and um, I'm sure Matt
1: will be covering this in some emergency fashion on his one with much podcast, more detail. With yeah, and and reporting and
2: insight. Just riff. <laughs> yeah, but um. Long-serving exec at Fox came over as part of the merger, was running all of the combined Fox and Disney TV assets along with his colleague, Dana Walden, by all accounts, a beloved figure, was called into Bob Chapek's office, and Bob Chapek cosplayed Mad Men season four with him and told him, thank you for your service, you're done.
1: I think there's a couple of details in the Hollywood Reporter piece about his exit, uh, which apparently took all of seven minutes to consummate in Bob Chapek's office. And one of my favorites is that uh, paraphrasing Bob Chapek was essentially like, uh, I don't think you're a fit for this culture for the culture we're developing. Mm -hmm. And, and Peter Rice was like, I thought the whole thing was, we were like building a culture together. (laughs) I'm not laughing. I feel, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm sure Peter Rice is going to land on his feet, you know,
2: for what it's worth. You and I had a similar conversation after I didn't like Obi-Wan, you know, the first time.
1: Well, that was what Um, I was going to ask you: is if you thought that uh, this was after Bob Chapek had watched episode four of Ilva B One, and he was like, "Pete, come on through my office when you get a chance."
2: Didn't help. I'm going to say didn't help, and maybe it's the tone setting that they need or the the reset. By the way, before we get into this industry talk, Gail Simmons is on our podcast today. Oh yeah, I
1: forgot. Sorry, people, I I completely buried the lead. Gail Simmons, uh, our beloved Top Chef judge, and somebody we've wanted to have on the podcast for a very long time. Was kind enough to spare way too much time talking to us th- this week, so we wrap up our thoughts on on Top Chef season nineteen in this podcast. In the second half, you're going to hear us talking with Gail, and it was a great conversation about this season, but also the nature of her job and how it's changed over the years.
2: And we spoil Top Chef season nineteen, Houston, right off the jump of that interview. So do not listen if you are still parceling out the episodes. You are correct. So let's turn back to this town, though. <laughs> All caps. <laughs> Um, is that working? Is that, is that a new bit? I think it's a big, I mean,
1: Mark Stein goes this league every time something happens in the NBA.
2: Oh, okay. So maybe, um, we're going to go from the bumpiness at Disney to, um, to Warner media,
0: Yeah,
2: Warner discovery media, discovery media, discovery Warner. Yeah. Right. So I want to float something to you that the. Discovery boss, David Zaslev, who is the highest paid uh, or compensated CEO in media and has now taken over uh, Warner Brothers, which includes, of course, HBO and HBO Max. I think he's an honorary Bob. You think Are you Dave, okay with
1: this? You think Dave is a Bob?
2: I mean, Dave is a capital B Bob. And I feel like we can't do the Bob report. Or whatever we've called this bit that we well, come who are back the Bob's? Let's just it.
1: let's just like like reset for listeners who are maybe okay. Maybe they come here for Top Chef. Maybe they come here for incisive Obi Wan critiques. And maybe they're leaving. Maybe they're leaving right <laughs> now. The Bobs are Andy and I's blanket kind of term for people mm-hmm. who run studios. But mm-hmm. it just so happens that it's pretty accurate because a lot of the guys who run studios are named Bob.
2: Well, it started with Bob Iger. Of course. Grandfather Bob.
1: Iger counter, for sure.
2: Who ran Disney uh, through, you know, a remarkably successful tenure, only to step down, but only step down on one of those half steps they have on very tall ladders. Yes. And, <laughs> and, and Bob stick Chapec, around.
1: Bob Chapek was his handpicked successor. But in the process of being succeeded, Bob Iger was like, actually, I think I'm going to take one more victory lap here and then let Bob Chapek immediately enraged Scarlett Johansson and and, f- and
2: Florida. Yes. <laughs> so that's not going great. And then then uh you know churning up dust on the outside lane has been Bob Backish who mm-hmm. runs Paramount. That's my guy. And I know that's always been your Bob.
1: Yeah. It's because- kind of like how um it's like being super into like when you're when somebody's like, oh do you you follow European football, what do you like? You're like only only like second tier Bundesliga? That's that's liking Backish, but Backish was, is winning. Yeah. Backish is fucking Top yeah. Gun in theaters. He's got the Sheridan verse. He had a solid season of Survivor.
2: He's doing fine. Yeah, and then here comes Big Zaz, aka Bob, um, aka Flip and, This House Bob. And you know we are not, as alluded to by Chris, we are not consummate insiders like Matt Bellamy is. But there are rumblings that. Uh, the takeover of HBO and all of the sub, you know, the, the Warner properties. It's not that it's not going smoothly, but it's not going quickly. Like he definitely is doing a price check on aisle all of them, yeah. and any project that was greenlit might be a little bit yellow lit now. Any budget that was approved might be getting redlined a little bit. And the highest profile example of this uh, crashed onto the headlines again this week because JJ Abrams' long gestating. Blockbuster sci-fi show, the show that he, he didn't stake his name on it, but he put his name on it, saying that I am returning in an active way. After to years making and years television. of executive
1: producing stuff, overseeing stuff, having this expanding empire the, under the Bad ro- Robot umbrella,
2: this new show Demimonde is his thing, his baby. He's going to direct it. He is, if not directly show running it, directly involved in it. Is a he wrote a big, big, big swing yeah. original idea. Yeah. yeah, he wrote the he wrote the pilot script and. um... This has been going for a minute, and it was one of the major jewels in the Bad Robot cabinet of curiosities that helped secure a quarter million dollar overall with Warner uh, right when the pandemic was just kicking off. And it was rumored that Apple was also trying to get Bad Robot and offered potentially almost twice as much money, but for total exclusivity, which might not have made as much sense because the Bad Robot TV deal, the Bad Robot Warner deal, is TV only because. He keeps a lot of fingers in a lot of different studio pies because makes Star Trek for Paramount and also Mission Impossible for Paramount, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He and also somehow has a couple
1: of Apple shows in the, in the works or at least shows yes. that he is a part of, like, the Fatal Attraction reboot, I think.
2: Is I think some his. of these are projects that were passed That's over by the Warner but, family. Yeah.
1: And then there's something at Apple. I, just so that our listeners understand this, and I know that we have a couple of things to get through before we get to Gail, but, like, when we talk about overalls... Um, yeah. Like, does that mean someone cut him a $250 million check and was like, please no. start delivering shows? Does that mean all your shows against this $250 come to us? Yes. Like, what, How does that work?
2: An, an overall deal means an agreement that the studio will pay you this amount of money over an agreed upon period of time. It's basically getting a steady gig. It's a steady paycheck. $250 million, if that's the correct number, I'm sure it's not exactly right, is the money that will be paid out to the Bad Robot Corporation over the lifespan of the deal, anything that they do for TV has to go through Warners first. Warners can say, thank you, no thank you, and then they can go sell it elsewhere. If Warners says, thank you, let's make this, the normal deal-making still applies. There still will be executive producer fees going to JJ or writing fees and everything else, but they are charged off against the lump sum they're already paying. Gotcha. So to earn out a $250 million deal would be quite the undertaking. You would have to be making tons and tons of shows that were generating profits in excess of the $250 million for you to begin making money on top of it.
1: Which gets Um, into the somewhat uh, opaque idea of what generates money on subscription services.
2: Particularly when it's all coming from within the same building. So Mm -hmm. there were rumors that this project was a little bit troubled or maybe a little bit expensive. Just there's been a lot of time spent on it. Uh, the different showrunners and co-executive producers or executive producers producers have come and gone. Then a week or so ago, I don't remember if we mentioned this on the pod, it hit the trades in a kind of an interesting way, right? That Zaslav was looking at this. He wasn't sure about this. Our boy, our boy Blois, our boy Casey was also scratching his head a little bit. Was HBO going to pull the trigger on this series? And with the backdrop of Zaslav being like, why are we paying this guy this much money when they're not making that much stuff for us? It seems like, and anyway, this week they said thanks but no thanks. Demi Mond hmm. will not be moving forward at at HBO, even though it was also the the other other piece of news about it. It was generally kept under wraps what it was about. But Danielle Deadweiler, whom we love, was the star of Station Eleven, or one of the stars of Station Eleven Miranda was going to yeah A scientist who it sounds like loses her family in a kind of sci fi type lab experiment accident and then has to find them in some other universe or other world. Sounds very intriguing. Love Danielle Deadweiler. The show's not going forward at HBO. This is really public and really interesting. And I think there's two ways to look at it. Um, Both may be partially true, neither may be true. We don't have particular insight into this as of yet. One takeaway is that this is just a classic big old pissing match between two rich lions, basically. Because it sounds like JJ was like, here's the show, here's the budget. We are going to need, quote, north of $200 million to make this season of television, Mm -hmm. which is, this is not a quote, north of what they apparently paid for the Game of Thrones spinoff, which comes packed in with a lot more goodwill and, you know, audience interest. Yes. Um, And from what we understand, the HBO Discovery Warner people were like, might you consider lowering that number? And the answer was no. And they did a stare down and... I don't know who, who blinks in a stare down when you don't have to pay $200 million for an unknown property, unclear, <laughs> but that's one takeaway from it, right? Yeah. The other takeaway from it, and I'm not sure if I agree with this one, because I think that clearly when you're dealing with something like this in the stratosphere financially and ego wise, it's uh, probably a lot of blame to go around, but it's worth keeping an eye on after this phenomenal year that HBO and Warner's had, not just with a, Content and you can go back in our archives to see all the shows that they made over the last year and a half, both for HBO and HBO Max that we loved. But this incredible year, where their streaming service and streaming strategy seems to have absolutely worked like gangbusters and separated HBO Max from the pack in a way that I'm not sure people were ready to predict when it launched a year ago.
1: No, for, certainly is not.
2: this is this what you want to be doing? Do you want to suddenly be sending a signal to all caps this town? that maybe you're not as open for business as you used to be anymore. Maybe you're not as creator-friendly as you used to be anymore. Maybe all the stuff that got you here, uh, maybe you're not valuing it as much as you used to before. I
1: I do think that it's worth mentioning that it seems to me a little bit like some of the budgetary price tags put on these shows when they're reported on are a little bit like Los Angeles Rams contracts, where you're like... (laughs) (laughs) So you're giving this guy $80 million for two years. I thought you were way over the cap and have no backup defensive lineman. And then it's like, oh, but it's like baked into this and it's guaranteed that. But then they have an out here and like, there's a lot of nuance to it. Matt also did on the town when they did their uh, mailbag episode last week. I was listening to it earlier uh, in the week, did a really good job explaining why some of these numbers are really high. So, like, I think you and I both really lol'd when we saw that uh, Noah Bombak's White Noise adaptation for Netflix is at like $140 million reported budget. Some of that stuff is because of the lack of residuals that are also going to be baked into it because it's going to live in perpetuity on a streaming service and it won't be sold over and over again and have like these yes. external revenue streams. So, people who work on these projects get paid once. And that's it, right? Like they can't bait they can't then add on like my home video fees or my, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's that's
2: the wrinkle in the deal making now that things are just going to be locked and siloed off forever. Because the previous version of Hollywood was, yeah, that you would shows could potentially be sold and resold into syndication or streaming rights that would come up for sale again and you could keep making money off of something. Right. That's increasingly no longer the case. So for a time. Certainly with TV shows like Netflix to get the projects it wanted away from the more traditional broadcasters or cable networks was paying $1.25 on the dollar, $1.50, $2 on the dollar to guarantee that it could secure it. And they didn't think- mind
1: because they didn't mind holding a lot of debt.
2: Yes, that and, has changed and Wall now a little mind bit. Either. Yeah, but the movie stuff, I think, is still particularly fraught because movies have always been based on back end participation by the by the principals. So that when you see stuff like, you know, Apple is securing this was it the F one movie that Joseph Kaczynski from Top yes. Gun is going to make with Brad Pitt, the deal making is going to get nuts because well, I don't know if you saw that that movie is going to have a thirty
1: day theatrical window. So like they're going to make sure that movie yeah. is getting getting out there. Um, all I don't this know, is to man.
2: say you're right. I think the numbers are a little are a little wonky, but I, I I think my choice here is not to mourn Demimon, which, by the way, Apple could now buy next week, so maybe mm-hmm. we'll still get to watch it. Um, once Warner passes, it doesn't mean it's dead, although it definitely doesn't mean it's in great health. It means they can shop it around. Now, who else wants to spend $200 million for an original IP idea? The list is Apple. That's the entire list. I just think it's a little screwy that we're talking about things in this ballpark. This is very summer blockbuster. This is very what has happened to movies uh, type of conversation to be having about TV. I mean, I'm not sure a Lord of the Rings series needs $200 million for a season of television. I I mean, I'm not responsible for it. I didn't make it, but I have to be honest, I crumbled and broke my anti-Amazon thing to buy some cookie pans, (laughs) cookie sheets the other day. So I contributed, I guess, in my way. So you're welcome, elf fans. But- it's just a little screwy that this is the, this is the realm of which we're having these conversations. I think
1: it's also worth mentioning, and this is actually a segue into Obi-Wan, is you got to be careful. Make sure you're, you're getting what you pay for on these things. Mm-hmm. And um, I find that more often than not, when watching a lot of these blockbuster shows, whether it's because of the screen I'm watching them on, or the time of day I'm watching them on, or the state of mind I'm watching them on, or my like relative like level of engagement to the stories that they're telling, mm-hmm. you know, Stranger Things, I enjoyed very VFX heavy season, a, a lot of it taking place in an alternate dimension. Obi Wan, obviously, ton of stuff going on there. Some of it shot in the volume, the the stage that they've built, the, L- the, the LED screen stage that they've built. Some of it, as Van and Charles pointed out, seemingly taking place in Santa Monica. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, I watch stuff like, you know, I, I just, just mentioned before we get into franchise stuff, like both for all mankind and Peaky Blinders are back this weekend. And, uh, I get a lot of enjoyment out of those shows and For All Mankind has like six set pieces a year and most of that show takes place between people talking in rooms deciding what to do about going to space you know and it's just like you either have the goods or you don't and I'm sure For All Mankind is an expensive show to make I'm sure Peaky Blinders is an expensive show to make you know what's not an expensive show to make Ben Wishaw and This Is Going to Hurt which we're going to talk about next week which is a show on uh, AMC Plus you can find it uh, on on Amazon if you have that that subscription And it's a show about an OBGYN doctor working at an NHS hospital who's having a a crisis. And it's just that sometimes is like, you know what? This is what I come to television for is like great writing, great acting, and a great story like this.
2: I try, and this is actually, this is a very, you're right. This is a good segue into talking about Obi-Wan to the degree that we even want to talk about it this week. But I try to keep a little church and state. So I, I, I want to be careful about how I phrase this. But a conversation I had in my other occupation was used the phrase that you just used, which is why I feel I need to share it. Scenes of people in rooms talking. That phrase was brought up as something that needed to be increased in the project that I'm not going to name in order primarily to reduce the budget. Yep. Secondarily, it was acknowledged that those are the scenes people like that make people fall in love with TV shows. So people know, but it is bizarre to me that it actually is kind of a magic bullet and not a CGI one, that people, when they talk about Game of Thrones and why they loved it, they don't talk about the dragons. They don't. I mean, the dragons were cool, and when it you know burned up the supply chain and ate the goats, like everybody was thrilled. It's not
1: why they were obsessed with it, though.
2: But that's not why. It
1: was Tyrion talking to people.
2: And we have definitely lost sight of that in the calibration of these things. And speaking of the Game of Thrones example, dragons didn't come until the end of the first season. And even then they were just little babies. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that was scaled appropriately. And it'll be interesting when we get the new Game of Thrones content this year, if they are, if there's, if there's an, any of that spirit is in evidence. Now it's a show called House of the Dragon. There are going to be dragons in the pilot, but not the spirit of the people in rooms talking, but the spirit of we have to be confident in the story we're going to tell to start it at the ground floor so we don't end up starting in the penthouse and then being like, hey, guys, not only are we in the penthouse with nowhere to go, but we're dropping, you know, $20 million an episode for the upkeep.
1: Well, you think about even the huge set pieces that are in Game of Thrones. Like, think about Battle of the Bastards or something like that or when the uh, all the people get revived, you know, at Hardhome or whatever. And the reason why those things are extraordinary, aside from the visual aspect of it and the scope, is how much you care about John because yeah. you've got so much uh, equity in him as a character, and that's what I was thinking about when I was watching a specific scene in this week's Obi Wan, which we don't have to belabor. I don't think the show is hitting for us. We don't have to like hammer it. Um, but I I noticed when they did this one scene where O'Shea Jackson Jr. is uh, arrived and he's like the leader of this like sort of way station for for. Uh, Jedi's on the run and they're like this fortress in the middle of an ocean which doesn't have any shields because they know no one could ever get into it is impenetrable and no one can get into it we couldn't possibly think of something and then Tala and and Ben are like in eight seconds are like here's how we're going to get in here and it's not like oceans 12 it's like oh I have an ID card that might still work there let's hope that works and the how they rush that Is like kind of an indictment on this project. You know, like they don't actually take its own story seriously enough to make me give a shit whether you guys can get into this Fort Knox in the middle of an ocean.
2: (laughs) It's not just that. You get the feeling that there were certain pegs that I think, and I understand why it would be this way, gave the creators and the executive team some peace of mind. I mean, the stress of making a show like this is enormous not just the stress of like making tv shows because it's super hard and stressful but i think they i think in good faith with in all honesty i think they take this very very seriously mm-hmm. the mantle of beloved characters in a beloved world and i think that can be anxiety making at the very least right and so i think they have these certain pegs they feel they can rest on like well we know there's going to be lightsabers we know Obi-Wan is going to use the Force. We know we have Darth Vader back in the mix. So, okay, so we have those things. The problem is what are we doing around them to get to them? I'm not even going to get into whether the battles such as they are are gripping or worthwhile mm-hmm. or if it was profoundly dispiriting to see even this version of Star Wars go back to its core competency on television, which is long hallways. Mm-hmm. Um or if these are good uses of Darth Vader. I mean, remember in Rogue One when he just shows up for 30 seconds and just regulates, and you're yeah. like, oh my God. Yeah. And in this, the first time we see him, he's stretching in his Zuba pants and talking to third sister. I'm like, guys, that's Darth Vader. Maybe maybe hide the ball a little bit because it's the best ball. Um, there's no even reason to get it's into that. W- it's it's just wild
1: that- weird that Darth Vader is like, you told me you were going to file your TPS reports.
2: yes. And that the entire emotional fulcrum of a show, of this state, this level, at this scale, at this budget, at this expectation, is hinging on the fragile, un- hinging unfairly on the fragile shoulders of a seven-year-old actress playing a character we know survives. Yep. it It is so bizarre to me that after all the years to make a show about Obi-Wan, no one had anything new to say about Obi-Wan other than, man, that guy really should have quit the Skywalkers when he had the chance, you know? It's not about him. The show has told us nothing new about him, shown us nothing new about him, developed nothing new about him. He's just kind of running behind the story. And my final thing is, I, you know, you and I, we love heist. We love heist stuff. Yeah. But I do think it's time for Star Wars to like invent AirPods. Because you know, it's not just that she's just like, I'll sit here now. It's that she's sitting there talking into... Her f- cell phone, the way my elderly parents do, if they accidentally touch speaker and don't realize it. Yeah, <laughs> like th- this doesn't seem particularly subtle or plausible. It's just, it's just a bummer, you know. I, I, I it almost makes the not, not to to go down a dark path with the two things that are bumming us out, but like people know that I and they think unfairly, like was dinging Better Call Saul more than usual for its lack of storytelling stakes because we know how everything turns out. I mean, this is, this is even worse than that in that regard, right?
1: Oh, I mean,
2: what's going to be different at the end of this? What are we? What are we excited to be rooting for or learning about in the remaining few episodes? I just,
1: I just don't think it has it. And and you know what? No. Like Saul, like we're, when we're doing Saul, and we'll be talking with Gail Simmons about this in just a few minutes. We're like judging the final dish at the end of Top Chef. We're like there right. is this microscopic error made. You know what I mean, or if we if we crit- criticize a show like yeah. that, it's, it's like, plating. It's not it's, the cooking. Yeah, and I would even say on the flip of that, there's Miss Marvel, which also came out this week, which we we don't have to get too into. I I would just say, while not my jam, mm-hmm. I am in awe of like how well made it is, how yes. entertaining it is, and how like sure footed it is. That that is a Fucking incredible pilot when you consider yep. it against Obi-Wan. You know what I mean?
2: In some ways, the biggest compliment I have for the show from Ms. Marvel is that the weakest parts of it are the connective tissue to the MCU. It is so strong and assured and vibrant and just feels like it has a reason to exist. And I think I I think I especially appreciate you saying it's not necessarily your thing. But you understand how well it's being made, you know what I mean? Like, its reason to exist is to tell this story in this. Tone. It's only not
1: my thing and, because, like, it's another coming of age, uh, yeah. like superhero origin story, which I feel like I've seen a lot of. And it's like, I but I'm going to keep watching it. Like, I found the the pace was breezy and like assured, and like the sense of humor was good, and it was an inventive. Like, I, I don't know, I did everything about it. I was just like, this is a show that knows exactly how to how to be itself.
2: The um, the directors are these guys Adil and Bilal who did the last um, Bad Boys movie, mm-hmm. and visually it's just a delight. The way they the way they put the text messaging not over the screen as we've been seeing, but literally into the picture like comic book balloons or comic book panels. Bisha Lee wrote the script and it developed the show. Understands what makes the character valuable, even if she had to change the powers for some, you know, Kevin Feige decided reason. Like that doesn't even matter because you kind of get it. And then on the margins, like they just they just kind of nailed it. You know, I think the cast. Iman Vellani is the star. She's, she's delightful she's immediately. So good. Yeah. They they cast the friend well. An actor named Matt Lynz. Um. I love 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 her parents. Yeah. Like they're just phenomenal, warm actors who are bringing us into the world and the balance between this is what it would be like to be a Pakistani-American family in Jersey City versus one living in Jersey City where also Iron Man exists, they nail it. Yeah. It's just a really well-done show. And I I think it's interesting that we're harping on just the the core competency of it because that is what has started to feel like it has been fraying, you know, with these TV properties and extensions from both Star Wars and Marvel, we get the big picture. We're thrilled you cast Oscar Isaac. It made me excited to see the next whatever movie these characters are going to show up in. But you're making a TV show that you want me to watch now? Make a good TV show for me to watch now. Yes. And it's not easy no matter what the TV show is. And these two, as like a double feature, it was stark. It was stark. No Tony. It was stark.
1: Yeah. Uh, we should wrap up here so we can get into our conversation with Gail Simmons from Top Chef. She was so generous with her time and a really amazing interview subject.
2: We love Gail. I hope she'll come back to talk to us again. We love Top Chef. Um, yeah, I feel like we didn't recap the season, but we kind of get into it in our We get into questions. it
1: here. Yeah. So uh, without further ado, let's get into our interview with Gail Simmons. We'll be back on Monday. Everybody have a great weekend. To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details.
0: It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle.
2: Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. This is a big day for us here at The Watch. Our guest is a cookbook author, food expert. And since the very first episode in 2006, an episode I watched live, Chris, (laughs) uh, on the very first episode of Top Chef, the permanent judge, Gail Simmons. Welcome to The Watch, Gail.
0: Thanks, guys. By the way, four out of 10, do not recommend you watch that uh, episode (laughs) again.
2: Have you ever gone back and watched the early episodes? No.
0: Are you crazy? I would never do that to myself. (laughs) I have seen clips of it over the years because they keep like popping up on the internet or my friends think think it's hilarious to like send it to me because they went back during the pandemic and like rewatched the whole series from episode one. And I'm like, stop it. I don't want to see it. Although I am young
2: and <laughs> <laughs> we, we all were once is, is, we were. is there a moment in the show that you consider like or maybe it's like the, the the overton window it changes over time but like is there a season that you consider to be okay to watch like when it became the show that you recognize and you became the self that you recognize or is that always sliding as we slip forward um
0: no it, i mean yes and no i do think we evolve i do think that is part of the beauty and 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 incredible resilience of our show to begin with the fact that we're still on the air 19 seasons going into 20 seasons later is because we are always shifting and evolving that includes the production that includes our mo and that certainly includes us as the you know core judges tom and padma and myself but you know, it, I don't know it's hard to say i would say like season six onwards i think we really got our groove but we were obviously doing well before season six. I mean, that was like right. four years into the franchise. Season one was just such a different, such a different show. Um, but we learned very quickly. And season two, we even made huge changes too. Season two was an incredibly dramatic show. Yeah. But I do think that season two is what people, kind of what solidified the show to people as legitimate and worth watching. And then I think season three onward really me. Se- I don't know, I could talk about every season because they were also different, but really like you know, maybe season four onward was when I really think we like found our groups, Stephanie Izard and Richard Blaze's season.
2: Right. But season one also is officially non-canon because Padma wasn't there. You know, it's like it's like how <laughs> William that. Shatner wasn't in the first episode of Star Trek. We don't
0: we even want to think about that episode. It's exactly no. the same. No. So, yeah. You know, um
1: when we talked to Padma, I guess two years ago, Andy was i I've, I'm now I in a zone it. where I can't remember when what we a did time. Same thing. What yeah a time. uh we talked a lot about how the show changed over the years and how cooking and restaurants had changed over the years too. I mean, obviously, a lot of stuff being brought to light, a lot of sort of behaviors being changed and for really good reasons. and I felt mm-hmm. like Buddha, in a lot of ways was like this great hybrid of some of the old school techniques that Top Chef celebrated in the beginning and that you sort of saw from, say, the Voltagios or something like that. Mm-hmm. But seemed to be like a genuinely nice guy.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I a lot want... of genuinely nice people. On oh, our sure. Show, yeah, for sure. However, yeah. yes. No, I know exactly what you mean. And I actually think there's a lot of really interesting things about Buddha as um, sort of like a poster child, in a way, for what we've been trying to work towards and and we are so proud of him for uh, number one yes fine dining extraordinary skill as a technician in the kitchen years of dedication and experience you know which basically at this point all our chefs have but he truly did show that amazing balance of his own sense of um identity the use of who he is as a person where he came from the story of his father of you know he's from australia he has you know malaysian roots chinese roots australia moving across the world um and cooking in some of these incredible kitchens around the world and then kind of culminating and by the way his life his, when i say culminating it's far from over like yeah. we are going to just begin to see him in his own right now um But what I think is the most interesting about him and how he is such a great example for the show this season uh, and our evolution is that he truly grew up watching the show, right? Yeah,
2: that's what I was gonna ask about, 17
0: years ago, he was watching the show as a very young kid, because again, we're really old and (laughs) we've been on the air a really long time. 17, 16 years ago, he watched the show and said to himself, this is what I want. You know, that that quote in the finale of like, I didn't want to be an astronaut. I didn't want to be a scientist. I didn't want to be a whatever, an author, whatever the quote was. I This is where I wanted to be. And here I am. And he manifested it. And that's also like an interesting sort of meta situation for us because he wanted to be on this show and go through that experience. And he had this singular goal and he did it. But along the way he was able to bring to it, like it wasn't like he just snapped his fingers and said, I want to be a chef and like became this person. I mean, he worked for 17 years to do it. Uh, And, and I think along the way he learned a lot as a leader, as a chef, as a cook, as a friend, as a, a human, as, as, a, as a citizen of the world. And I think he brought all that with him.
2: But I do think that's fascinating, the idea of the next generation of chefs growing up understanding and watching Top Chef
1: because I mean, the show itself... He studied
0: every episode. He studied every challenge. I mean, it's a different game. He was playing a different game.
1: You see that's that on, thing. on Survivor where people are playing now where they've written dissertations on Survivor and are now playing Survivor. It-
2: And and one thing I think to Top Chef's credit and why I love it and never miss an episode and I've never seen an episode of Survivor is that while it is a competition, the game part of it, isn't always what leads, you know, and especially over the last few seasons, I think in a really wonderful way, the relationship between Top Chef and the industry has shifted slightly where it begins to feel like you're leading the industry where it should be going in a way and really privileging things that we've seen. We saw really beautifully this season, which is not just diversity, but personality and emotion and connection, storytelling, all these aspects of cooking in addition to the, to, to the skill. That said, that's the other thing that Buddha brought though, because he's seen all the episodes. He never reached for the pre-made pasta. You watch nineteen seasons of the right. show. Every year, someone's like, I I got this. I'll just buy the English muffins. And you're like, Have you never seen yeah. Top Chef?
0: <laughs> right. But he did reach for, you know, but he did make a mean um amatriciana, if you remember. And that was like, that to me stands out in a way. That episode, yeah. the one episode where he cooked for his wife. Yeah. Yes. And just made the simplest pasta, which we actually didn't think he was going to be able to do. Like, and that was her dish, yeah. Yes, and all, and ultimately he was capable. His capabilities weren't in question, but his mental ability to like come down a bit, chill out a bit, cook from the heart. Because sometimes he and many chefs before him have fallen into the trap of feeling like he had to be mm-hmm. too chefy. And there were moments where I was like, "You really chefed it up." He didn't win. It's not he won every episode not like he won every challenge he was on the bottom for some quick fires he you know there were moments where he stumbled because i think he overthought he was a little too cerebral and we weren't seeing from him like any emotion in some of in some of his cooking especially in the early episodes but then it was like that moment onward he was just when he was able to just like make a simple delicious pasta i was like okay he does get it he does he can find his soul and dig deep and just make something that doesn't have to be perfect but that
2: is meaningful he, he also showed us something that i guess you probably didn't get to see until the edit but you know in, in the episode where one of the best of the season by far i thought the episode set in the historically black church um mm-hmm. you know and, and the basically the, the the what the assignment was and the cultural reference points and buddha's like i'm a chinese malaysian guy from australia i guess i'll mm-hmm. wing it and he was <laughs> yeah. willing to bring enough of himself to it but also bring enough humility to it Yes. to really succeed in a challenge that I think previous contestants from previous years might have said, well, this isn't mine. You know, I don't have a place at this table, which is kind of stands against what the show is becoming.
0: Well, not just sure what the show is becoming, but I think that the entire point of that specific challenge and and our sort of MO with doing specific episodes like that, there's going to be lots of episodes now, always. I mean, the whole point of the show is to take the chefs out of their comfort zone, right? That is the actual point. I say it all the time if if we wanted to just see how you cook perfectly all the time, we would just come to your restaurants, right? The entire point is to take you out of everything comfortable, usual, strip away and then see how you do. Or else there's no point to being on the show about to being in the competition, right? If you have your comfortable kitchen that you've cooked in for years and your sous chefs and your all the ingredients you're used to, and all the cultural reference points that you keep in this little kind of bubble of a world, then of course you're going to make the same thing. But it becomes rote. And also, where is your uh, connection to to cooking for other people? To that relationship that food serves to connect us, to universalize, to be an ally? Because as a chef, that's that's what we're asking you to do, right? It isn't necessarily about you. It's about nourishing and feeding and sustaining other people. So we want people not only to be out of their comfort zone because they've never cooked with an ingredient, but out of your comfort zone because the cultural touch point is different. Trust me, by the way, I don't have a cultural touch point to Freeman's town. I'm a Jewish white girl from Canada, but my God, that was the best thing I'd ever done. Not only for me because I learned and I grew and I was able to uh, immerse myself and be humbled by it. But because I got to then not only learn about Houston, learn about the story of slavery in this country and how that story of freedom came to be, but then get to see it in the chefs and how they interpreted it too. Right. So like, that's the point. And, and yes, Buddha really understood that it isn't about him It's about this place, this lesson, and the greater story that it can tell, and what it can teach
2: us. That was a rant. I wanted no. It was important to say, and and I did want to ask on the point that you just made about comfort zone, specifically about the finale, because um, we have obviously we have a lot of general questions for you about the show, but we're now just we're still only about a week removed from from the finale. One thing that really struck me about it was, for the first time in a while, it felt like the three finalists were cooking with joy with like a palpable sense of happiness and mm-hmm. lightness in the kitchen. This isn't a judgment mm-hmm. on past seasons because the past two seasons have featured some of the very, very best cooking and very, you know, just the highest level stuff that we've ever seen as viewers. But thinking specifically about last year in Portland, you know, there was, it felt some stress, some chefs felt stressed out. You know, Don had yeah. a time management issue. Shoda kind of was, was, was crumbling a little bit. And I don't know how much of that was carryover from having to cook on the raining, freezing Oregon beach the week before, but this this season felt like lighter, you know, and they felt like they were doing their best and they were ready to, to live with whatever they put on the plate, you know, that didn't have that, that, that heaviness hanging over it. I wonder if that was true on your side of the table as well and why you think that might have been.
0: I think it was to some extent. And I think the context is important also, the greater context of the world and the moment in history mm-hmm. when they were cooking. I mean, last year... I think back and I still have, I mean, we all have post-traumatic stress of some sort from the last couple years of life, uh, no matter who you are, no matter what you do. And coming to Portland for that season, for season 18, um, the chefs were in an enormous turning point in their careers, in the industry. It, everything was up in the air. They didn't know if they had restaurants to go back to. Half of them didn't have restaurants anymore. Their restaurants had closed. They had come with like open wounds, you know, Uh, to the season and the season was challenging in ways we could have never imagined. We knew the pandemic, we made a bubble, we knew it was going to be a challenge in a thousand ways. And then of course there's all the unexpected pieces to it that Portland gave us for better or worse. We were cooking through the worst wildfires the world's ever seen. We were cooking through political and civil unrest. And so there was all these external factors that added stress, of their cooking on top of their personal journeys and and abilities. So I think that you can't underestimate that. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Portland gave us the contestants that they did at the time they did and they were able to accomplish it is like extraordinary. You know, and yeah. it wasn't a perfect season, but it was a really honest season and we're very proud of it. But coming back this year, you know, we were still getting tested for COVID every three days. We still couldn't go indoors to anywhere. Uh, publicly there were still constraints on how we structured the season from a production standpoint. But I think a year later, the chefs were in a better place. The industry ha- has come a long way. It was open for business. Um, and they were too. So they had a little firmer footing. Um, and I also just think it has to do with the three particular people who mm-hmm. made it to the finale, each of whom had really like amazing journeys to get there i mean we know about buddha we've talked about his like singular pursuit evelyn uh just is the most joyful soulful talented you know she was like an under not an underdog she was sort of just like i think people underestimated her mm-hmm. but she just cooked from the heart the whole way through and continued to give us i mean she was winning from day one but you know you kind of still thought i don't know she's like She's small, but she was mighty. I mean, her soft work, her dishes, like I still have so many memories of specific dishes she made for us, that I'll never forget. And she also was so amazing as a teacher, both to the other contestants and to us about her culture, about Mexican cooking, about Texas. I mean, when she walked into a room and there were Houston chefs in the room, like I'm thinking of the barbecue challenge in particular, mm-hmm. like the whole room stood up and started cheering for her because she's so beloved there right. and to begin with. And then Sarah, who like, you know, was eliminated early on and just fought like a mofo. I mean, I don't, I mean, she just killed, she crushed it. Tom would come back from Last Chance Kitchen every day, every time he shot and be like, Gail, Sarah, I don't understand. She couldn't, she didn't do this. Obviously it's the beginning of the show, but man, she's good. She's good. Like he was like, watch out. And then she came back and, you know, was so triumphant. But so humble too, so humble. They were, so I think they all just really were like happy to get there regardless. If you saw, I saw that Sarah posted this beautiful thing about Buddha and she was just like, there's no one else I'd rather lose to. This was the perfect ending. This is how it should be. We all did great and we're really proud of ourselves and each other. But
1: I had a, a question about Last Chance moment. Kitchen because, you know, we've seen a couple of chefs slingshot back out of there stronger, mm-hmm. you know, and I think trying to remember if Sarah was unique in terms of how long she was in there and then also had you know funnily enough like a second chance at Last Chance Kitchen because she had lost I think that one to Ashley right and then Ashley came back and then Sarah got to get back into the competition where's your head at with LCK because it is kind (laughs) of weirdly um, become it's a big deal. So yeah. And I click immediately as soon as the episode's over. I go go watch Last Chance Kitchen. And the time constraints are very, very, very intense. But in some ways, it's like cooking. It's a very pure version of cooking. It's almost like watching yeah. a cook on the line get after it. Um it's like a
0: hyper quick fire on steroids, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, it's you- also stripped everything away. Like that's the whole point of it. Everything is stripped away. There's there's no tricks, there's no you've got 15 minutes, you've got only Tom, you've got the you got the kitchen. It's funny that I didn't pay attention either, sort of secretly. Sorry, (laughs) Bravo. Uh, To Last Dance Kitchen for a long time. I mean, I knew that Tom loved it and I knew that it served a purpose and Kristen came back and won and Brooke came back and won and Joe came back and won. And so I like, I watched sometimes and I always, I mean, Tom's always my insider. So like he would always keep me posted on the developments, what was going on there, what he was, because he in a way gets to know the chefs in a really raw, different way than Padma or I because of that, so this season, when we were in Houston, I went to the, our producers and I was like, I want in, I need, I need to be in. I want to be part of this because it's so cool now. Like, I really have to say, I'm like, I want to see it. I've never, ever been to Last can Kitchen. Can I just sit in? Like at first I just wanted to sit in, you know, where they have the, the eliminated contestants sitting to cheer people on and do the commentary. I'm like, can I just be there one day? It's like, and, like wearing a day? hoodie, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah a mustache but uh and they were like well then why don't we just make one with you and uh you that let's do it like if you want we'll build something that makes sense um so they let me do an episode this season and it ended up being a very relevant episode to the context of uh, of the show because number one it was the delivery ghost kitchen last chance kitchen episode so it was a follow-up to restaurant wars jackson had been eliminated It was about creating a restaurant concept, but they had 45 minutes and they had to cook a takeout order from like a ghost kitchen or a restaurant concept and deliver it to me and Tom. So that's like something that's happening in the restaurant industry, very relevant right now. So many delivery ghost kitchens, you know, the restaurant doesn't exist, but it's a concept that you can just get delivery from. And, uh, And it was kind of Jackson's moment because everyone was so up in arms and and surprised that jackson was eliminated and he was up against sarah so i'm sure he came in being like i got this you know he's a pretty talented guy too uh and i was so thrilled to to watch it and be there and eat their food because they both did like what they both were able to accomplish in those 45 minutes of a quick fire i was like this is real like i could not believe that they did it and they both did great i mean it wasn't like sarah um Won by a landslide. But in the end, I just, what she did, her concept was so like solid for something that sounded so creative and different and interesting. And uh, she, it was like she'd been obviously making that food for years, which which was because she was very confident in it and and good at it.
2: Also, in the end, only one of the contestants had taste buds that worked.
0: (laughs) That's also true. But interestingly, Jackson's, food was all good like that's it's the crazy so crazy part of jackson right by the way we did not know that hand to god we did not it's... know that jackson had had covid and lost his taste buds until the chefs found out as well like after we eliminated him at restaurant Ward. after like that night was when it, our producers told it's us. it's one of the well. most impressive
1: and, things i honestly have ever <laughs> seen in any competition
0: yeah but also because there was I'm another crazy. chef
2: this year who was continually dinged for not seasoning his food or putting salt yeah. in it. So and if, if you had asked the judges no which guy here has COVID, yeah. maybe he would have said Luke.
0: Maybe. Mind-blowing. Yeah. It was wild. It was wild. So, but, but to your point, that Last Chance Kitchen episode with Jackson, it wasn't about seasoning. Yeah. And he wasn't eliminated from Restaurant Wars because of seasoning. You know, both, he's do not know how to do that, but... He seasoned his food well, and it was good. It just uh, wasn't as interesting and as technically incredible as Mm -hmm. Sarah's was. Um, It wasn't that his was bad. Hers was just better, which is almost always the case.
2: So a, a moment ago, I was alluding to the interview we did with Padma where she talked about she really credits a moment when the two of you became executive producers as a moment when you both were able to put a little bit more of your shoulder into pushing the mechanism of the show forward and and changing it to a degree. Um, obviously, the industry has been through upheaval. We've all personally been through upheaval in the last few years. The show as well. Um, you mentioned the Portland season. I mean, I thought that was an incredible feat, first of all, by everyone involved. But also such an incredible, like... Um, test for what the show is and could be and bringing back the returning judging panel, which I found to be absolutely fantastic because not only were these people that I loved seeing on TV, but they had a different and more intimate knowledge of this year's, of that year's contestants. Yeah. The, the same version this in a way, like what you get to have, where you taste them week to week as opposed to sort of parachuting in and being like, that's too salty. That's not good or or whatever it might be. Right. I, I guess, broadly speaking, I was wondering where you feel the show is in its evolution. I mean, obviously it's still changing in a way that keeps it relevant, that keeps it entertaining, that keeps it exciting. Over these past three seasons, which are just really unprecedented out of the 19, you have the historically great all-star season, you have the incredibly challenging and unique Portland season, and now this rebound season from it. Where do you think the show is in an, in its evolution and what, what levers do you still feel need to be pushed? Uh, there's
0: a lot of questions there, Andy, but I like them.
2: I sometimes don't even put a question in it. So (laughs) I I feel like all I can say is you're welcome.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. So I think first and foremost, I think, and I said this in a way earlier, I think the reason our show has had the success it has, especially in these last three years where it has not just maintained, but exceeded expectations in its ability to bring something new and different and exciting to our viewers is our ability to stay nimble, to evolve, and to reflect this moment, just not not just in our industry, but in the world. We do not follow a script. We are not a studio show. We face everything with loud conversations. We don't just say, well, it doesn't matter what's happening outside the doors. We're just going to keep plowing forward regardless. We're going to just do this formula in this studio regardless of the fact that like war is raging quite literally outside these doors like that is not how we handle it we address we have conversations both in production leading up months before and then very publicly in um within the context of every episode where we face issues and we aren't afraid to make our voices heard on where we stand on issues, how we think the industry is changing, evolving the world too. I mean, we talk about, you know, cooking with World Central Kitchen. We we did an episode in Houston, I think that was incredibly powerful about female leaders in Houston for many, many reasons, not just the fact that there are so many extraordinary women in Houston and in greater Texas who have made impact in America who often go unsung, but, you know, one of whom was the daughter of the first female governor of Texas, who also happens to be the ex-CEO of Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. Um, these are big statements to say on a show uh, in, in the middle of um, a lot of human women's rights, reproductive rights, all these things, healthcare being up for debate in this country, et cetera. You know, speaking about Freeman's Town, making sure to include, um, you know, the story of the immigrant populations in Houston and the um, and the the story of of black freedom to slavery in in this country. Those are very loud discussions that we had and continue to have. I do not credit myself entirely or Padma or Tom for those. Uh, I think we all push and we all. Um, Make sure that these conversations can be had for sure. But I also really am grateful to Bravo, to our production team, Magical Elves, and to our executive producers and showrunner who have been running the show from the beginning. You know, our executive producer Donine, who I feel like you guys have spoken to over the years, started as a PA on season one. Mm,
2: we have, and it, but now we she's
0: a showrunner. You should. She is an encyclopedia of Top Chef. She is unbelievable, and they have never brushed us under the carpet. They have never, any concern we have, any topic we want to broach, they are open. It is a big conversation. Uh, I really do also credit Tom as our industry north star in a lot of ways for keeping us on the straight and narrow from the beginning, not just making sure that, you know, it is fair that that the contestants are considered and that their food and their challenges are kept relevant, uh, but also so that the state of the industry is understood and our sensitivity to that. Um, and, you know, sure, yes, I think we all weigh in and we all feel very invested and we all feel very heard about our concerns. And I think that um, continues to be a conversation that I'm very lucky to have on television because it it isn't always the case. And I think it has contributed to our um, our longevity. So the state right now, I think that we are we were thrilled about how our season came out. And I think that we are going into a really big moment. We're going into our 20th anniversary. Like I have to say it to myself over and over again, because that is unbelievable. Um, 17 years of making the show, but 20 seasons and and we are heading full force into our 20th season. And we're going to push further in a million ways. I mean, we're already preparing as you know, to go abroad. So we will not be shooting in America for the first time. And that's, Logistically, wow! I'm really glad I'm not my executive producer. (laughs) I'm really glad I'm not the showrunner because she's got her hands full in many ways. None the least of which is that I text her and email her every day with like, I have an idea, and can we do this? And what about this? You know, Um, and I'm sure everybody else is doing the same. So that's going to be big, and it's going to pose even more challenges. And that's just one level of a way where we can continue to push. Um, I think the contestants will be completely different this year and we're taking an angle that no one has seen us do. Um, I think that it allows us to have a more global discussion about cuisine, about history, global history. Uh, We've, except on the few finales where we've gone abroad, I think mostly we have been introspective about this country's journey and how food impacts that journey, you know, talking about this the influences yes the immigration story to this country but now we're going to be outside the country so it'll just give everyone a much more global perspective on on food and we're going to a place that also has a really interesting um immigration historic perspective so but from a to- you know but from abroad from across an ocean uh so that's pretty great the fact that we're able to keep pushing. And I think that's what's so beautiful about our, our topic, right. Food as a general topic. It isn't, you know, it's like, we, this is a show about many things. We just do it through the lens of food. I think it used to be like a food show. Mm -hmm. And now I feel like it is a show about many things. Um, But it's just, we use food as a lens with which we are able to have all these through, which we're able to have these conversations about so many bigger things. So this will allow us to do it further, as long as we can all get there safely.
2: I I just want to see Tom's international hat game. I just <laughs> oh, want him to wear. So I'm no idea. so so excited. I I mean, the beret in France is a must. Maybe a beef eater mm. thing, and not that we know where you're going. But
0: okay. no, I know. Oh,
2: I'll will sit back.
0: Um, I wanted but to ask. Also, a, oh, that's it. Oh no no no. I was going to say ahead. that that's a big point. Of, you know, don't think our the head of our wardrobe department isn't. Fully in on the joke. she It's her favorite thing. It's her the favorite. important you know, part is, is Tom account. in on the joke. It's, yes, it's. Oh, he's in on the joke. Yeah. He's in on the joke. He has to look straight in the hat. Our, you know, there's like a Twitter account, an anonymous Twitter account dedicated to Tom Pat. Hysterical. Yeah. A must follow.
1: I wanted to actually ask about the judging. You know, in the same way that I've come to really love Last Chance Kitchen, I kind of want to pitch you on this idea, which is post season, release the judging tapes. You know, I would love to hear Oh. Mm. The, the, no, but so here's <laughs> the, the, the Yeah, but just I'm curious whether or not, you know, cuz most of the judging clips usually wind up it, creating present. this air yeah. of suspense so that you don't know who's going to win the the actual right. the actual end of the episode, but you know, I find that the way that you describe food is is actually like crucial to the show because we can't taste this food. So the judges are our kind of avatar for going through these dishes.
0: Absolutely.
1: I was curious if you could talk a little bit about what it's like to judge, maybe once it's down to five, four or five people, because it does seem like, especially this group that you just finished, it was like finding it wasn't ever catching a mistake. It was like the separation of minor, minor blemishes in mm-hmm. these last few dishes. And how much, how is that different from when you're judging earlier in the season and you're maybe having some, this wasn't cooked through or the rice didn't work out and like right. sort of larger, larger swings yeah. and misses.
0: Well, that's, that's a big point of it. In earlier on in the season, the first several episodes, even though there's many more people and we need to acknowledge and sort of sift through all of them and take into account every dish it's a lot easier in some ways to say okay so and so yes or no oh no they were good enough they're definitely weren't the worst one okay put them aside and then narrow it down very quickly or there were some glaring things and so it's very easy to say okay well, that person's definitely on the bottom and we need to go back to that person and re-examine them um, on the bottom and talk to them and figure out what happened there um, towards the end you think the judge's table gets faster but it doesn't because as much as we have less people, the challenges are more difficult, there's more components, and we go much deeper because there's so much there to get to, because it's not easy. You can't just be like, well, that person won and that person lost, and we can just get to the point really quickly. Um, our judges table, which you've probably heard ad nauseum, are our judges tables are much longer than they seem. It's like, you know, eight to twelve minutes on camera in the final edit of the show, but we're there for three to four hours, sometimes much, much longer, especially on finales. We used to be there for like eight hours, but we've like condensed the production of it and made it more efficient. And, you know, that was very conscious on our production to do because we were like seeing the sunrises and that was not (laughs) healthy for anyone. I was like falling asleep at judge's table. But, but still four hours of sitting and really talking like, yes, there is a lot of interesting stuff there that you do not see uh, for sure. And so I definitely don't think anyone wants to watch those four hours. There's a lot of like sitting around like this and there's a lot of lighting changes and there's a lot of like banter and jokes and silliness, but there's a lot of other really relevant stuff that just can't stay in because they just don't have the time. And that would be interesting to watch. One example that comes to mind from this season And I actually haven't seen the full final judge's table of it. So I'm not quite sure what kept in. But the first episode of our finale in Arizona, when they were cooking with the chiltepine Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, they were making a sweet and a savory dish and Damar was still um, in the game and he was eliminated that episode. That Mm -hmm. episode was an example where they had to make it a little more suspenseful or else he would change the channel. But in my memory, having not watched what the final Mm -hmm. edit was, Damar's dishes were distinctly not as good as the others. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't about us. I mean, Damar got, he was my my man. Like I really, we all are in love with him. We all think he's incredible. And we really were disappointed that he really, he didn't show up the way I knew he intended to that day. But, you know, the edit needs, to make it not that we're doing anything tricky or, you know, like suspect, suspectful. Like, I don't know Mm it's. but we, you know, that, that was an instance where the, the three others were so good and he did have mistakes. And so we sort of knew going and we didn't speak speak to each other, but we sat on the judge's table, it really was apparent that, unfortunately, his were not at the same level as the others, which often doesn't happen at that stage in the game. And then we off to the finale. And That's interesting. And that was a much deeper conversation. Yeah.
2: It, it, it's such, it's so interesting. And it makes me think of what you said a moment ago, which I agree with completely, that the show is so much more than a food show now. It's so much more than a competition show as well. And I, I definitely don't watch, everyone watches the show in their own way and they get their own things mm-hmm. out of it. But one of my takeaways from this season was, and I don't think it's just because I'm a veteran viewer, I didn't feel a great deal of suspense this season and it in no way took away from my pleasure you didn't
0: or you did i,
2: I did you not didn't. and i don't mean right. over the course of the season i definitely did i mean individual in each episode one picked up the vibes the chef's body language you know the types of dishes that were being put up in comparison to others who was going to be eliminated or who wasn't i did maybe the better way to say it isn't that it wasn't suspenseful it's that i never disagreed even though obviously i didn't get to taste the food or but i don't never, think right no but i don't think it took I, away I, from I hear the enjoyment you.
0: It's an interesting thing that we talk about post and I'm sure there's many postmortems going on about this, about this season going into next season with our production. And and we will all talk about it as well is, you know, because we sort of headed in this slightly different direction or a slightly new direction and it's happened naturally and gratefully that the chefs are, they work well together. They support each other. There's a Mm -hmm. lot less competition. There's a lot less drama And that's been an organic thing that's happened over the course of 19 seasons to get where we are for many reasons. I think that is reflective of the industry. I think we are in a new phase of where we were 17 years ago in kitchens. I think it's not necessary. I think at the same time, reality competition as a television genre has evolved. And it's also not about nastiness and villains and drama. It's just not. It's about talent and skill and learning and evolving, whatever. So that conversation is relevant to the tension that we create in the show. And are we getting too soft? Is it, do we need to create more tension? Is that, you know, some people complain about it. You know, some people watch the show because of its kind of thrill of the competition. And are we, is it too kumbaya? You I mean, do you
2: remember that the the meme before we had memes, when the whole thing about reality shows was that I'm not here to make friends. Literally, they are now there yeah. to make friends. And that was
0: tough. Yes, yes. And but I, they, I like I, that. And if that happens, it's like you put people through an experience together and you, they all come out changed and they are the only other people that they have experienced this with. So you, you form bonds. Also, this is something that I've talked about many times before, that being in competition with the people cooking beside you is actually antithetical to what a kitchen is. It's what the reputation of kitchens, mm-hmm. you know, used to be. That everyone is like, I'm just in it for myself. And you put your head down and you don't help your uh, the other person beside you. But these days, this generation, we all now understand when you're in a kitchen, you are working as a team. Yeah. You are there for a common goal. You are there because you you build each other up and a uh, high tide raises all ships, right? And so to then get into a kitchen after cooking that way and come into a kitchen where we're asking you to not do that. We're asking you to remember that the person cooking beside you, who's awesome and who you love as a person and you're getting to know and you're learning from, but is also your competitor is really like antithetical to what they're used to. And so they're, they understand it, but they've also realized that you don't need to be an asshole yeah. to be a competitor. You let your food speak for yourself and the food is where the competition is. But the camaraderie of a kitchen is actually like, at the root of how kitchen teams work and are made better for it.
2: So we, we, you've been so generous with your time. We should let you go in a moment, but I did have That's to right. ask, especially speaking of camaraderie, um, one of the best things about the show is it's apparent how well everyone involved gets along with each other and, mm. and in good spirits about all of these things. And though the seasons change and the competitions change, Every year, there's at least one or two circumstances where the chefs have been cooking. It's like 99 degrees, whether it's Texas or California (laughs) or wherever. (laughs) Um, Suddenly, out of a cool green room, you and the other judges emerge looking incredible. Tom's wearing some sort of straw hat number. You're wearing a Mm -hmm. gown. Someone hands you an ice-cold glass of Terlato-branded Chardonnay Mm -hmm. or whatever. We don't
0: sweat. None of us ever crack a sweat, ever. And,
2: And then... With your immaculate makeup and everything, you then swan around and eat, you know, 15 plus
0: dishes
2: (laughs) and then have a full day of work. work, So you guys know how to do this by now. But I wonder in those times when you emerge beautiful and smiling, you often have like maybe a past contestant there with you for the first time or a local person. What do the noobs not know about how to survive a day like that, that, you know, (laughs) after 17 hard fought years of judging?
0: Um. You know, that you don't have to finish every plate, that we're gonna talk it out and make sure that everyone agrees and we're gonna be fair and everyone's voice will be heard. And, you know, but speak up because we have really loud voices and we won't let you get a word in if you don't speak up for yourself. Um, We always talk to our guest judges, whether they're an alumni or, you know, the local guest chef or the chef who's come with us for the day beforehand that the producers talk to them. I'm always like a bit of the welcome wagon. Most of them are very dear friends, more than not. So we reach out the night before, we all get together. They've watched the show. They know the show. They and especially the alumni, they're really nervous to be on the other side, but also really excited. And so I think it's eye opening, but it's also really natural because we just make it a discussion. There's not a lot of like stop, say this, do this, stop eh, awkwardness. Like we don't stop down you know, we, we stop down, we make edits or or make people repeat things for camera as minimally as possible. So it really just feels like you're sitting at the dinner table. You know, their only request is that Padma lead the discussion and only one person speak at a time to make sure that the cameras and audio catch them. And that sometimes we need to just like remind everyone about. Uh, but but that's it. I think we just make it as natural as possible. The The other thing is that we do we are humans and we do stop and take into account people's needs. Um, we need bathroom breaks. We need our waters full because we're scorching in the heat. Uh, that episode, that first episode of our finale in Arizona, when we had Carlotta from El Charo Cafe, who is just a legend, an extraordinary woman, but she, we were sitting in the sun for hours <laughs> and she was like, I need a break. I need yeah, to go into yeah. it. And so we stopped, we stopped down for probably half an hour She went into the cool, uh, we shot around her, you know, so that there wasn't an empty chair at the table so that we could so the chef could keep cooking. And then she just tasted the food inside in the, in the air conditioning and then came out and gave her comments. Um, because things happen. I've had wardrobe malfunctions. I've had, we've all had issues happen at the table, but you know, the beauty of editing—we want to make it look seamless and obviously inclusive and, and smooth. But just like any show, we have to keep it at forty-six minutes. Sure, so we need, <laughs> but, but, we need to get it done. But
2: you when know? your old boss Danielle Balloude, uh you know, mm-hmm. jet skis in for an afternoon, there's no desire yeah, to haze him. Yeah. You, you, there's no like, here, eat twenty oysters <laughs> 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 and then join us here. Like, no? okay.
0: <laughs> we were I, I mean, actually, I had dinner with him last night. Totally randomly, I went to his one of his new restaurants here in New York for the first time. I was actually having dinner with his wife, and he came the day when we were talking he was like wait the episode aired and i didn't see it uh, wait how was it was i okay did i come and i'm like daniel you were great it was awesome I'm like don't worry you can watch it on your own time he was like but wait who won i didn't follow because i was watching you know in real time and then i couldn't watch my episode and now i don't even know who the winner is i was like telling him about buddha you're spoiling uh, it yeah was, that, yeah he was like no he needed to know he's like i i i'm off the bandwagon just catch me up catch me up um But that was also a really special episode for him, too, for obviously many reasons. Not only was it the episode before the finale episodes, but it was at this restaurant, Blue Dorn, where his chef Aaron, who had cooked for him many years in New York, had opened this really exceptional restaurant in Houston. And and the chef made amazing food that day. They all really brought it. And so I think he was like really invested, which is just the best because we care what he thinks. Cause he's still my boss. He'll forever still be my boss. (laughs) And even Tom, I think, you know, Tom's like, he's still kind of my, he's everybody's boss. You know what I mean? He's the boss.
1: Gail, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for being so generous with your time. And we can't wait to see how your European vacation goes.
0: (laughs) We will keep you posted. Um, Thank you guys. I really love the, um, the joy you bring to your recaps. And and we're just, we're honored that you still care.
2: Thank we care for
0: following along.
2: <laughs> we care so much, and there wasn't even room in our conversation for me to to talk to you about your memoir, which I read. Um, and Chris oh, didn't. Thank you. So <laughs> I feel like maybe you'll I have mean, to come back point, next it's season. Like,
0: it's like fifteen years old, so there's, there's a lot that's happened.
2: I assume okay. there's a new edition it's coming. Let's not a
0: memoir. It let's let there there will be a part two. But
2: yeah. <laughs> okay. Good.
0: Thank you, guys. I really appreciate so much. Much. you.